Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you are watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, where we are now in our eighth in a series of lessons on the antioxidant defense system. And today we're going to be talking about hormesis, which is a principle that a little bit of something that's bad for us can actually be good. And that's because of the way that we respond to it. And the specific example of that is that we are going to be looking at is how polyphenolic compounds in plants as well as other compounds that are not poly technically polyphenols but that we could collectively group together as phytochemicals that these have a tendency to act as pro-oxidants in the body but to be very good at upregulating our own defenses such that through the range that they occur in the human diet, they're actually good for us rather than bad for us because the little bit of stress that they provide to our systems causes a greater upregulation of our defenses than any threat of danger that it may pose. So what I'm going to be talking about today is broadly true of these phytochemicals, but I'm going to look specifically at EGCG which is a representative of green tea catechins. When we look at green tea catechins as representative of polyphenols, and polyphenols is representative of these phytochemicals. There are thousands of these chemicals, and it's absolutely true that each one of them may have its own unique profile of effects that it has in our body. However, it's also broadly true that most of these act through the same system that I'm going to be talking about today to upregulate our, our antioxidant defenses. So what I say about EGCG is broadly applicable to these other compounds. Polyphenols, as shown on the screen, are structurally related to benzene and are abundant in plants. If you look at benzene, it is a ring a six-membered ring with alternating double bonds, and a phenol is a benzene ring with one or more hydroxyl groups added to it. The specific chemical phenol itself is shown here, and it has one hydroxyl group added to it. But you could add more, and you could call, and you could say you could classify anything that has that pattern as a phenol. Polyphenols have numerous phenolic rings. And you can see EGCG as an example. There's one phenolic ring, two phenolic rings, three. So it's a polyphenol in that sense. There are thousands of polyphenols, many subclasses of polyphenols, and they have a variety of roles in plants. They have no known role in animals, though. No known essential role. So they may impact our health. They may even be health-promoting, but there's no deficiency syndrome associated with a complete lack of any particular polyph polyphenol in our body. So they're not essential nutrients. And if we look at what they do in plants, we see a broad diversity of roles that can provide insights into how they might act in our bodies. So for example, sometimes a polyphenol is protecting a plant against oxidative stress. Sometimes a polyphenol is absorbing particular wavelengths of light in order to generate a color that's going to attract insects. Sometimes polyphenols 
are sent into other organisms to regulate gene transcription. For example, a root might exude polyphenols in order to act on nitrogen-fixing bacteria to increase the expression of genes that are going to cause the bacteria to engage in a symbiotic relationship with the plant by fixing nitrogen from the air into a usable form for that plant to take. Sometimes polyphenols are going to act in the defense against pathogens, either by acting as a pro-oxidant and causing toxicity in the pathogens, or by chelating essential minerals and making them unavailable to the pathogen. In other words, to cause malnutrition to the pathogens. So we can glean a few key insights from this. First of all, because polyphenols play many roles in plants and no known roles, no known essential roles in animals, then they're going to be mostly found in plant, food, plant foods. Most plant foods are rich in polyphenols. Animal foods generally have traces of polyphenols. Animals eat plants, so the fact that polyphenols don't bioaccumulate up the food chain in that way, the fact that steak isn't a good source of polyphenols in the way that vegetables are, is in itself showing us that animal bodies must treat them not only as not essential, but as something that should either not be absorbed or should be actively removed from the body, and we'll actually see that that's the case. Second of all, we could look at this and say, well, what might they do in our bodies? Maybe they act as antioxidants, but maybe they act as pro-oxidants or regulate gene transcription because they fulfill all of those roles in plants. So let's take a look at what EGCG does in our body to get a sense of what it might be doing to the antioxidant defense system. Shown on the screen is the results of incubating cells outside the human body with EGCG at various concentrations on glutathione on the left and on the right on MDA and 4-HNE. Malandialdehyde, MDA, and 4-hydroxynonanal, 4-HNE, are lipid peroxidation products, and so the bars on the right are indicative of lipid peroxidation. The concentrations of EGCG used are 0 and then 10 micromolar. Physiological concentrations when we drink green tea are under 10 micromolar. So as we go from 0 to 10, this reflects physiological concentrations that we could get from green tea. But as we go to 50 micromolar, 100 and beyond, these are super physiological concentrations that we probably would never get to unless we're injecting ourselves with green tea catechins or we're mega dosing with massive amounts of them. On the left, you can see that physiological concentrations of EGCG increase glutathione. But then as you get into super physiological concentrations, you start to lose the effect and ultimately you wind up back where you started with no net increase in glutathione at all. So the increase in glutathione is limited to physiological or slightly supraphysiological concentrations. Now, interestingly, in cellular experiments trying to see how EGCG and glutathione react, EGCG and other green tea catechins 
can't recycle glutathione. In fact, glutathione tends to recycle them. So whatever they're doing to the glutathione there, it's not by supporting its recycling. Now if we look on the right, we can see that physiological concentrations of green tea catechins have no effect on lipid peroxidation. But once you get into superphysiological concentrations, they increase lipid peroxidation. So the same thing that's causing harm at high concentration is causing benefit at low concentration. And that should ask us, that should cause us to ask, is that through a different mechanism or is it actually through the same mechanism? Well, let's look at the direct effects of these catechins. EGCG is capable of acting as a pro-oxidant. It can combine with oxygen to form superoxide. When it does that, it donates an electron to oxygen. And because it donated a single electron, now it's a free radical. So with EGCG reacting with oxygen, suddenly we have two free radicals, superoxide and the EGCG radical. Superoxide can then have all of the downstream effects that we attributed to it in earlier lessons. Meanwhile, what happens to the EGCG radical? Well, the EGCG radical has this unpaired electron and it's gotta do something to react. One of the things it can do is react with protein thiols. So for example, it can oxidize the sulfhydryl group of a protein thiol, bind to the sulfur of the protein thiol, and now you're gonna have a protein that's conjugated to EGCG and that can affect the protein's function. The EGCG radical could also directly react with glutathione, form a conjugate, and that could lead to the depletion of glutathione. So what happens to EGCG and other polyphenols in our intestines? Well, they undergo xenobiotic metabolism as if they were toxic. A polyphenol can go through phase one and become a reactive polyphenol metabolite. And then in phase two, it can get methylated or sulfated or glucuronidated to form a polyphenol conjugate that gets exported in phase three. This happens in the intestinal lumen. And when it happens there, phase three exports it into the feces. The portions of the polyphenols that we to absorb are then subjugated, the portions of the polyphenol that we do absorb then undergo further xenobiotic metabolism in the liver. This same process happens and then export goes into the bile. From the bile it can either go into the feces or be reabsorbed and go to the urine. The data on the screen are what happens to epicatechin, which is another green tea catechin when it's infused into the intestines of healthy volunteers. Epicatechin is less abundant in green tea than EGCG, and it's considered a less powerful antioxidant, but it's way more bioavailable than EGCG, so the data here for epicatechin are actually overestimates of what you'd expect for EGCG. So in this study, less than half the initial dose was absorbed, so in this study, less than half of the dose was initially absorbed. 3.5% of what was absorbed was directly spit back into the intestinal lumen. And then what was absorbed, over half, was excreted into the bile. About 20% of the total dose reached the circulation. 
Of this, nearly a quarter was excreted in the urine within the first 24 hours. And then most of what was circulating was metabolites that have been sulfated, glucuronidated, or methylated. In other words, almost all of the epicatechin within the first day had undergone xenobiotic metabolism that either prevented its initial absorption or caused it to get excreted in the urine or caused it to circulate as phase two conjugates rather than as the form of the epicatechin that we would drink in the green tea. These numbers would look worse for EGCG because EGCG is known to be less bioavailable than epicatechin. So although polyphenols can act as direct antioxidants in plants, it's unlikely that they're going to do so in animals if they're so inefficiently absorbed because how are they ever going to reach the high enough concentrations in order to have that effect? Moreover, if they do have that effect, why are humans and other animals so actively trying to get rid of them? Well, to understand how this happens, let's first briefly review gene expression. Shown on the screen is a simplified view of what happens in gene expression. We have the conversion of DNA to RNA in the nucleus, that's called transcription. RNA templates move out into the cytosol where they can attach to ribosomes in the endoplasmic reticulum and be used to translate the information within them into a protein. That protein may be uh, processed in the endoplasmic reticulum or exported elsewhere. It could undergo other steps as well. Ultimately, that protein is going to be degraded in some way. One of the ways that can, that can happen is in the proteasome. There are transcription factors that regulate this process by entering the nucleus and altering the rate of transcription from DNA to RNA. Genes respond to transcription factors through response elements. Depicted on the screen, we have the coding region of a gene, and the coding region shown in brown is what contains the information needed to assemble the proper amino acid sequence in a protein. In a continuous strand of DNA, so in no way separate from the coding region, you have the promoter region, which contains specific sequences of DNA called response elements. These response elements are what respond to environmental factors, such as through the binding of transcription factors. NERF2 is a transcription factor that is involved in the response to oxidative stress. In the absence of oxidative stress, NERF2 is in the cytosol, and it's kept there by a protein called KEEP1. KEEP1 has a reduced sulfhydryl group that acts as a sensor of oxidative stress in the cell. And KEEP1 not only holds NERF2 in the cytosol, but it actively directs it into the proteasome for degradation. So NERF2 is always being synthesized, always coming out into the cytosol, always being kept there with KEEP1, and always being directed to degradation in the proteasome on a continuous basis in the absence of oxidative stress. In the presence of oxidative stress, an oxidant oxidizes the sulfhydryl group of KEEP1, often forming an adduct with it. 
That causes keep one to release nerf two, and instead of going to the proteasome for degradation, nerf two translocates or transports itself into the nucleus where it will bind to the antioxidant response element, which is present in the promoter region of many genes involved not only in antioxidant defense, but in xenobiotic metabolism and a whole host of other responses to stress. That then results in a greater rate of transcription and a greater rate of translation and a greater production of the proteins involved in the defense against stress. Notably, the antioxidant response element has also been called the electrophile response element. An electrophile is something that loves electrons. An electrophile is an oxidant. So this antioxidant response element, to translate a little bit, is also called the oxidant response element. It turns out that they're the same thing. It's having an antioxidant impact because of oxidants and oxidative stress. Well, what else does this? These antioxidants act the same way as oxidants, as drugs, as toxins. Polyphenols or other phytochemicals like sulforaphane. Xenobiotics, oxidative stress, all of these things activate NERF2. And NERF2 upregulates both of the enzymes involved in glutathione synthesis. The glutathione S-transferases and the glutathione peroxidases. The phase 2 and 3 detoxification enzymes. Superoxide dismutase, catalase, heat shock proteins that defend against the stress of heat shock. Glycation defense enzymes. Ferritin, which helps sequester iron because iron, in the presence of reactive oxygen species, iron can aggravate reactive oxygen species and make its own contribution to oxidative stress. So oxidative stress upregulates the system, and this system helps you sequester that iron to prevent, to prevent it. So this is a whole suite of responses to oxidative stress, toxicity, and cellular stress in general. So part of what we can use to explain this is the idea of hormesis. A little bit of a bad thing is good. So you can imagine that in a very generic way where we have some health span ranging from detrimental to beneficial, there's a range at which increasing concentrations is going to have a hormetic effect and eventually we're going to lose the hormetic effect and reach a concentration where we have a toxic effect. If we take the principle of hormesis and look at the data that we looked at for EGCG, glutathione, and lipid peroxidation at the beginning of this lesson, the parallels are remarkable. In hormesis, we have an increase in concentrations in a range that provides benefit. We gradually lose the benefit, and then we go into the range of toxicity. We saw that with EGCG, we gradually gained a benefit and then started to lose that benefit, completely lost that benefit, and instead got toxicity. And if we understand how NERF2 works, we can say not only that this can be bad or good depending on the concentration, but the mechanism is the same. The mechanism by which it's increasing glutathione synthesis 
is by activating the NERF2 pathway because it's a pro-oxidant that has oxidized the thiol groups of KEEP1 and allowed NERF2 to go into the cell and upregulate the defense against oxidants. And there has been, through that, a net benefit. But it's still the pro-oxidant effect at a mechanistic level that's leading to the antioxidant benefit. You also have to consider the influence of xenobiotic metabolism. Why is it the case that when we drink green tea, we get physiological doses of these catechins around 10 micromolar or less? It's because when we drank the green tea, we rejected most of the catechins, and whatever got into our bodies, we subjected to xenobiotic metabolism that led to further excretion. So were it not the case that our bodies recognized these as toxins and subjected them to xenobiotic metabolism, then we might get the concentrations that cause toxicity. In other words, these are toxins that we are so well adapted to that they provide the exercise that we need to rev up our systems. But the only reason they're providing net benefit instead of toxicity is because our systems are evolved so well to be able to handle the toxic load and respond to it well. We still have one unanswered question. Why is it that if cigarette smoking and green tea catechins and other polyphenols and other phytochemicals all act in the same way on the NERF2 pathway, why aren't we out there trying to find the hormetic dose of cigarette smoking? And why are we telling everyone to eat more fruits and vegetables? Well, part of it is the concentration, but part of it is also the specific compound. I like to think of well-behaved and poorly behaved toxins. Well-behaved toxins are the ones that we're evolutionarily adapted to, the ones that our systems are very well designed to handle, and they activate NERF2 much more than they engage in toxicity. They provide net protection and hormesis. Poorly behaved toxins are much more toxic than the NERF2 activation that they offer. They lead to net damage and toxicity. Really, it's not that the toxins are well-behaved or poorly behaved. Really, it's that we are well or poorly adapted to those toxins. If there are some toxins that don't activate the NERF2 pathway that much at the same concentration at which they cause toxicity, that just means that our NERF2 system isn't as well designed to sense those toxins. It's not the toxin's fault. Now, there's one final point to be made, and that's that NERF2 activation just provides a signal. It doesn't give us any of the raw materials that we need to synthesize any of these enzymes or any of these compounds. For example, we can only synthesize so much superoxide dismutase before we run out of copper, zinc, and manganese. We can only synthesize the enzymes involved in glutathione synthesis so much before we run out of cysteine or we run out of glycine. So you can't expect maximal NERF2 activation to provide endless benefit. Now it's possible that we could 
move the line between hormesis and toxicity with NERF2 activators by providing more inputs into the system, like the raw materials for glutathione synthesis and the minerals that are needed as cofactors for the antioxidant enzymes. But that's something that we need to study more. And in the meantime, it would be wise not to assume that more of a good thing is always better because hormesis by definition means that more is not necessarily better. More could leave you worse than you started out with. And we have to keep in mind that if we have nutrient deficiencies or deficiencies of the raw materials needed to synthesize glutathione, NERF2 activation isn't even necessarily desirable because it's putting stress on a system that isn't well equipped to respond to that stress. So it's important never to look at only one piece of the puzzle and always to look at the big picture and hit all the bases by proper nour properly nourishing all the different parts of the system. All right, I hope you enjoyed this lesson. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com and you have been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn.